they change it? Please, why? Well, be- oh, yeah, but you're ABC. Of course you'll be all politically correct. Oh, yeah, we have to change it just for the sake of changing it. That is all it is because you have to because all the women's group pushing for it. Women's in charge of the ABC now, isn't she? Turn Mr. Squiggle no. into Mrs. Squiggle. No. What? No. Ms. MS, Ms. Squiggle. No, we Ms. don't. Ms. Blackboard. No, we don't make. Like no, we don't make Doctor Who. I know we don't. I'm Rob and I'm Dave and you're listening to the Doctor Who show for the month of July. Dave, how are you? I'm not too bad. It's been a busy month, but I'm happy to be here chatting Doctor Who with you. How are you? (laughs) I'm fluey. So if I sound slightly off or if I become slightly delirious, please excuse me. We may we may not not be able to tell if you're slightly delirious when you when you get worked (laughs) up, but we'll see how we go. Yes, and I'll probably will get worked up, but more on that in a moment. Dave, what did you make of that audio I played before our opening credits? It was very amusing, and it reminded me of some of those clips we used to send around back in the very early days of email, of uh, you know various um, phone calls and sound bites and stuff. It was just, just old-fashioned internet humour, I thought. Did you ever hear the one where the guy, he'd sent in his Toshiba laptop and the hard drive had been erased and he went absolutely crazy on a, on a voicemail? Yes, I was thinking of that one. Have you heard the Ream Man one where his hot water service breaks? No. Oh, that was very similar and almost the same voice, actually. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I actually took that, that first guy, I even know his name, it's Stephen Thrasher, because I took the audio and I put a backbeat behind it and I turned it into a little song back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> sort of saying, my name is Stephen Thrasher. My name is Stephen Thrasher. Anyway, we're getting uh, we're getting yeah, a rabbit hole yeah. there. Uh, we will play the full audio of that at the uh, end of the show after the credits. But Dave, I think that does lead us very nicely into the first thing I want to discuss before I completely go delirious, and that's Dave O'Gate. Yes, we need to talk about Dave O'Gate because that is the issue of the moment right now. That's right. I mean, as everyone knows, Jodie Whittaker has been cast as the new Doctor. We've done an hour-long show on it. Thank you to all of you out there who have listened to it. It's one of our most popular downloads at present. So we've covered it in great depth, but what happened is around San Diego Comic-Con this past weekend, Peter Davison gave some honest opinions. He had been giving them before San Diego Comic-Con as well. I'd even retweeted one of them, which was he was just saying, hey, you know, rather than jumping on people who aren't so sure about the casting, why don't you try and understand understand them a little or, or help them through it i thought that was a really nice message it was kind of saying be kind to people but my god after san diego comic-con you'd think peter davison is the worst guy in the world to the extent that he's actually been hounded off twitter uh, yes he has he posted a couple of days ago and said i thought we could have an intelligent discussion clearly we can't he said i think i'm quoting here it has become a toxic environment and i'm out yeah yeah, and look, I've got to agree with him. And I think you you might feel similarly, Dave, because, gosh, 
you know, there are people out there who have really wacko views, really vile and disgusting views, but Peter Davison, progressive Peter Davison, a man of the left, a man with his own daughter, a man who's quite happy with Jodie Whittaker's casting, he's not the guy you should be yelling at people and, and you know, getting in the face of and hounding off Twitter. He just had his own point of view on this. Uh, I think one of his other comments was, oh, it's a shame that, you know, young boys won't have a role model anymore. There are counterpoints to that as well. I guess, you know, it's time for young girls to have a role model, perhaps. Or young boys can have a woman as a role model, too. But, gosh, it was just the rough end of the pineapple he got, I think. Yeah, it was It was very, very nasty and very, very unnecessary. Peter Davison did make a very valid point. And he's been a crusader for this for a number of years, if not decades now, that young boys do need good moral role models in television. And I think mm. that's a really good crusade to have because not every role model for the for fun young boys should be He-Man or James Bond or whatever. There's a place for the gentler, smarter, uh, more intellectual, more worldly, more more softly spoken role model for males. That's an important debate to have. And Davison has been having this debate in a commendable way for a long time. And to focus only on that and not look at all the positive things he said about the casting of Jodie Whittaker and not have an intelligent debate about all of these things and the pros and the cons... Is, is just absurd. And Malcolm Hulk predicted this 40 years ago because what we are seeing on Twitter now is the modern-day version of the reminder room from Invasion of the Dinosaurs, where mm. if you do not subscribe utterly, line by line, to the personal views and morality of another group of people who have considered themselves to be the moral arbiters of the internet, then you are sent to the reminder room and lectured about how awful you are until you conform to their exact worldview and you know what it's not our place to judge everybody else certainly not to judge strangers on the internet and certainly not to judge peter davison for something that he basically doesn't think yeah exactly and hey if you are going to judge people at least judge them right at least pick up on the nuances of what they're saying uh, i was talking it was might be matt barber or simon brett or someone like that from one of the podcasts we listened to and you know, we were saying there are people out there with really horrible views. Okay, you can tell if they've got really horrible views, but if someone like Peter Davis is saying it, that's that's not who you go after. Pick up on the nuances. You know, they're not all the same. You can't lump them into the same category. But I think the average internet user is like, oh, I think I'll just put them all in the same category. You know, oh, drives me crazy, Dave. And if I didn't have the flu, I'd probably be banging the desk by now. Oh, thank goodness for small mercies then. But no, I, I, think, <laughs> I think we're both very much in agreement. It's a... Uh... It's a low point of Who fandom that what's happened to, to Peter Davison over this. But we must remember that Twitter is not the world. Twitter is not fandom. It's not representative. It's a ghastly place, often. It can be a fun place. It can be an informative place. But it's often a ghastly place. And it is not representative. And thank God for that. Yeah, we, we try and be pretty selective, I think, with who we follow and who we talk to on Twitter, and it's generally quite all right, but the larger cesspool, hmm, yeah, I don't want to go swimming in it. No, but <laughs> that does lead us to the more positive, which is we are now, what, a week or two from the casting of Jodie Whittaker? It's only been a week and a half. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy, isn't it? But already there's tons of fan art out there. There's, you know, I, I think a whole lot of love. Stephen Moffat was saying at San Diego Comic-Con, there's been no backlash. It's just been, you know, I think he said one fat man with spots in his basement or something. <laughs> and I thought, well... How, how well, is Ian Levine? <laughs> I thought, Moff, you know, you're not on Twitter. You probably haven't seen the worst of it. There, There is a backlash, but 
on the whole, I think it's been more positive than negative. I think that much is true, at least. Look, it absolutely has. And I've been very impressed by the way that it's engaged the community more than I thought. Uh, a friend of mine recently started as a, in, in a new position with an organisation in Victoria, and they went to a team building workshop today where all of the tables, so all of the teams, had been named after positive female role models or women in history. And one of them was Jodie Whittaker. Really? So my friend, she she sent this little photo and put it on Facebook and said, you know, guess where I am, da, 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 and look at which team, oh, I'm on Jodie Whittaker's team. She has been in a normal workplace team building thing. She's been listed as one of the women role models. And, and, and who did they have her up against, Dave? Like... Marie uh, Curie and I, I don't Amelia know that Earhart, I don't or... I don't know that bit I have to I'll have to find out that bit but I just thought you know that's an example of how this decision really has permutated into the community quite quite a lot gosh that's number one with a bullet and clearly a geek works for the company running that, <laughs> that mob <laughs> it, it has and it brings me to to an important point that I think is worth adding to our discussion from our, our special episode in that. I, I think we were very tied up in how does this affect the show, how will the character be, and all, all the rest of that. And maybe we didn't emphasise just how much that this can be a big deal for the community. And we, we were trying to be very balanced in this and saying, you know, you can have different opinions, and, and I still feel that way. But maybe we do need to just remember that Doctor Who does reflect society in general. And when we look at Doctor Who in the 70s, we can see certain values and positive and negative. In the 80s, same thing. And when people look back at this era of Doctor Who that we're about to experience, it will say something positive about the world that it was made in, that the female Doctor was cast and that it was broadly embraced. Absolutely. You know, and no one out there who's not a fan of the show will be able to point at us and say, oh, look at your show. It's always casting, you know, white men as the Doctor. You know, that that's put to bed now. It's 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 beyond that. And I think that's going to be a very, very good thing going into the future. It is, and now we just have to wait for another 14 months to actually see what she's like. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll get, as we said, I think on our special, we'll get some sense in the Christmas special. We might get to hear what accent she's going to use. Is she going to use that Yorkshire accent? Is it going to be received pronunciation? Uh, we won't see the costume, I imagine, but we will probably see it as the months go by in Doctor Who magazine or something. Yeah, a long 18 months ahead, but uh, positive, hopefully. Absolutely. In fact, I was talking to Kate Orman about that on... Um, Gallifrey Base. I know it's a horrible place, but there are some good threads in there. Kate had started a thread about Jodie Whittaker, and I said, this next, you know, 12 months or so, my God. And she's like, yeah, tell me about it. So, yeah, everyone's on board, I think. Yeah, I think so. Now, that's the big news for the last month. Anything else happened out there that we need to talk about? I can think of a couple of things. Certainly have been. We've had, of course, some people pass away. Debbie Watling, for one. My God, I was so shocked when I heard that news. Yeah, I, I really was quite moved, and it, it, it got me into a very reflective mood. Because when I think back to when I first became involved in fandom, there was something almost mythical and ethereal and Camelot-esque about the idea of the Second Doctor and Victoria and Jamie, because mm. we didn't we didn't really know much about them other than they were from this legendary, wonderful season of Doctor Who, of which. Only at this time, only four of her episodes existed and were almost impossible to get hold of. Yeah. So, you know, in Australia, we had in 86 those repeats of the Crotons and the Mind Robber and the Seeds of Death came out on video shortly thereafter. So for us, the, the, the Troughton years were season six mm. and there was this mythical season five out there. Then Victoria was part of that. And I still think of her to this day as being part of that mythical, special 
part of Doctor Who, that, that real classic part of Doctor Who. Now, we've had many of the stories um, arrive since then. The Ice Warriors, Tomb of the Cybermen, Web of Fear, Enemy of the World. So now we can see a lot more of it. We're very fortunate. And I think she's lovely in them. But I'll always think of Debbie Watlin and Victoria as being this kind of special mythical thing. Um, did you ever meet her, Rob? No, no, never, never met her. But from everything I can see, and I'll talk about this uh, a bit later, uh, when we talk about the Doctor's DVDs, from everything I can see, what, what a an eccentric, fun, interesting person. You know, I, I, she comes across to me as maybe more interesting in real life than her actual character, perhaps. Well, I, I have met her in real life. I went to a convention that she was at for the day, and she's she was all of that, just wonderfully engaging. Uh, so much love for the series, so much love for her fellow cast members, um, you know Fraser Hines particularly, and yeah, this is this is one that sort of you know did 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 get me a little bit. It's quite a sad one. Yeah, and and it just sort of crept up. There was no sort of sense that there was a, a problem. I guess we we never get told there's a problem with people. No. You know, I think of Elizabeth Slade, and that sort of crept up as well. And boom, she was gone as well. It, mm. It's just so shocking when it happens, though. It is. It is. But uh, very well remembered. Absolutely. And of course, Trevor Baxter has passed away as well. Professor Lightfoot from one of my favourite classic Who stories of all time, Talons of Wang Chiang. Yeah, that was another one that I mean, came out of nowhere, but I, I guess I mean, these things always will, as you say. And another really iconic actor for someone who's only in six episodes, maybe even five. Is he in the first episode? I think he might be, but at most six episodes of the Talons of Wang Chiang. Six mm. episodes in 50 something years of Doctor Who, but he's one of the most iconic one-off characters, so brilliantly written by Robert Holmes, and as part of, you know, if you say Holmes in double act, the first image that comes to mind is Jago and Lightfoot. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, Big Finish picked up on that and they've put out series after series of Jago and Lightfoot CDs in more recent times. But he was extremely popular before that. It didn't take that to make him popular. He was always this incredibly popular character, as you say, only appearing in maybe only five episodes of one story. I might have to go and check that now. Yeah, so another sad one, another iconic mention. But uh, um, look, Big Finish are industrious. They seize opportunities. So I am expecting the announcement of the new Jago and Strax seven (laughs) disc box set any time now. Yes. On, on a more serious note, I actually own the first series of Jago and Lightfoot. I've not listened to it, but there was some ridiculous sale on uh, about a month or two ago where it was like about $10 or $15 or something instead of 30 or 40 And I thought, yeah, I'll have that. So I've got it sitting here and I might, I might pull it out at some stage and have a listen. Very cool. What else have we got, Dave? Well, a trailer for the Christmas episode dropped because, of course, we live in the modern day now where Christmas lights and Christmas trees go up in you know, April or something. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a trailer for the Christmas episode, which uh, confirmed a few things. We knew that uh, the first Doctor was going to be in it. It's confirmed that Pearl Mackey will be back in, in some capacity, whether she's in one scene or the whole episode. We're not quite sure, but she will be back. And... One Mark Gattis is going to be in it. Yes. And before we get to Mark Gattis, we should mention too, there's one Clara who's going to be in it as well. Yeah, I know. But we can't, <laughs> we, we, we can't have everything. Very true. And of course, this Gattis news uh, leaked before the trailer came out. He said, yes, I have a role in the Christmas special. And people immediately jumped to the conclusion that he'd be playing Pertwee. Because he had, you know, gotten up in his Pertwee gear around the time of an adventure in time and space and done a recreation of the, I think it was the Three Doctors photo shoot they are trying to recreate, wasn't it, Dave? That's right, yes. 
and people will say, oh my god, I can't believe this, and I was kind of of the opinion, yes, you know, if they, if they wanted the third Doctor in this, surely Sean Pertwee could do a day's filming for it, but no, it doesn't turn out that that's what he's playing at all. He's playing a military man. Half the internet, I think, jumped to the conclusion he was playing the Brigadier. I immediately <laughs> jumped in and said, no, 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 that's a World War One officer, so it's certainly not the Brigadier. Could it be the Brigadier's dad? That would be a very moffety thing to do. It's, it would be. It's reasonable conjecture. Look, Rob, you know my rule that I don't analyse beyond the uh, their life force trailers. <laughs> but, I, but I get why this has got people excited. Yeah. Well, look, in the last uh, day or so, I've had the Candy Jar Books people tweet at our um, Twitter handle. They're the people who put out the Lethbridge Stewart range of books, and they said Lethbridge Stewart's dad was in the RAF, so he wasn't an artillery officer and he was born at a certain time, blah, 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 and they gave me a few facts, so it, it seems increasingly unlikely that that's who he'll be. But initially, I think a lot of people freaked out, because Mark Gatiss has a very particular way of acting, he's very theatrical, and I think people think, oh my god, if he turns out to be the Briggs dad, that might be a step too far. Yeah, well, look, it'll be interesting. I'm interested that the uh, people behind that collection did tweet you, because they've done some great work with that thing, and there's some very interesting titles in there. I haven't seen them all, but I've dipped into it. And uh, I believe that a certain contributor to one of our fellow podcasters is uh, an author for that. Yes, Rob from 42 to Doomsday has written a short story, is it, in the Lethbridge-Stewart range? I believe so, yes. So, um, yeah, check that one out. Now, before we get into our main topic, we've got a couple of minor topics we just want to chat about. And I'm going to start off by just mentioning a piece of merchandise that has arrived in the last month. Uh, So this was a birthday present from my sister in the UK, and it is the Doctor Who Emperor of the Daleks comic book collection. Ooh, nice. So this has got... Okay, let me me say, I think people talk about how their first Doctor from their childhood often ends up to be their favourite. I think even more so, the era of Doctor Who magazine that you were reading as a young teenager, everybody's convinced that's the golden era of Doctor Who magazine and of the comics. Yeah, funnily, I'd agree with that. Unless you're somebody like Paul Schoons, who's just an expert in the whole thing and can pick and choose sort of more objectively. I think everybody remembers their childhood ones the most. So this is a compilation of all of those classic DWM comics from my early teenage years. So as well as Emperor of the Daleks, which I'll touch on in a moment, uh, there's Pure Blood with the Sontarans, Flashback, Up Above the Gods, which is a little prequel to Emperor of the Daleks, Final Genesis, which is an alternative timeline Silurian story, Time and Time Again, which was, I think the, I think it was the 30th anniversary story. It's got all the doctors searching for the key to time, cuckoo and uninvited guest. But Emperor of the Daleks was just this wonderful story. It, it was a prequel to Remembrance of the Daleks. And I need to stop there and just say that because it is Remembrance of the Daleks month here in Australian podcasting with everybody doing episodes about and mentioning it and um, shout out to our friends at Flight Through Entirety and New to Who, who have both got Remembrance of the Daleks episodes out this month. Check them out. But it's, it's a wonderful little prequel to that. It is so massively full of wondrous fan continuity that only a Doctor Who magazine comic could do. Uh, written by Paul Cornell. It's got the Renegade Daleks, the Emperor Daleks. It mentions Planet of the Daleks. It's got Colin Baker in one episode, um, and he's also in the prequel. It, it's really good. But the other thing I want to say about this is I kind of thought when I asked my sister for it for my birthday and it was on its way, it was going to be recreated like a magazine with that sort of paper and that sort of binding. But it is this most gorgeous book with a, you know, solid card cover, proper heavy, glossy paper, 
it's just an absolutely lovely piece of ephemera that has all the favourite comics of DWM from my teenage years and published by Panini, um, available at Forbidden Planet and also on Amazon. If you're interested in Doctor Who magazine comics, check these things out. There's about six volumes now and more are coming. Oh, that sounds excellent. Was the co- was the comic in colour at that point or have they colourised this for the release? Most of them were in black and white, but the episode that was in DWM 200 is in colour mm-hmm. and the episode of Time and Time Again, which I think was the 30th anniversary issue episode, that's also in colour. So two of them in colour. And there's also notes from the authors about you know how they thought of their story and how it was produced and all that sort of thing. So a little bit of reference material there as well. Yeah, I love when when comics get collected into trade paperback format and they can have extras in them. They're almost like DVD extras in a way. Mm. I, I love that kind of thing. And that's a little uh, later than my sort of golden era with Doctor Who magazine comics. My golden era is probably about issue 119 through to... 150, 160, they're the issues I collected like a mad ferret. So uh, some Colin Baker-style um, stories and some Sylvester-style stories in, in there. And a lot drawn by John Ridgway, as I recall. So uh, I should go and look and see if they're available, because that, that's my golden era. They, they could well be. It could well be. Now, something I've been uh, reading of late are the final three Peter Capaldi novels from BBC Books. And the first of these is Diamond Dogs which is a David Bowie album, of course, but uh, here it refers to something completely different. They're gathering diamonds in the uh, rocks circling Saturn. Um, the, the huge pressures there create diamonds, apparently, and they've found a way to, to get diamonds, but I won't say any more than that. Um, it's written by Mike Tucker, who is a very old-school Doctor Who kind of guy. He was doing visual effects on the show back in the, in the mid-'80s, I think, through to the show uh, finishing up in 89 but he's also done new episodes as well i mean he won a bafta for day of the doctor i think he works with the models unit these days but he also writes the odd novel he's very old school in the way he does it and this has a similar vibe to an earlier capaldi novel he wrote called the crawling terror which i also liked as well i quite like the way mike tucker writes his novels and and this didn't disappoint right so what what sort of age range or demographic are these books aimed at it's really hard to say. They could be read by a young adult, I would say, quite easily. Uh, whether they appeal to uh, adults or they appeal to me. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Certainly, the novels have gone... Oh, I don't want to say down in mental age since the days of the NAs, but certainly the BBC novels of today aren't really a, a patch on the, the style and the scope of what the NAs were doing, or even what the Eighth Doctor Adventures were doing either, truth be told. But they're still quite entertaining. This actually feels like a Tom Baker story, uh, except told in 45-minute episodes like a modern story and has Peter Capaldi in it. So, you know, it's, it's quite fun. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad that that sort of literature is still being brought out. And Look, it, it makes perfect sense that it would be pitched at a younger age because you are trying to get that current audience in, not just, you know, an old audience of a since-cancelled series like the BBC books were or the NAs were. So, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, and I've actually embarked on the second of these final three ones. It's called Plague City, and it's set in Edinburgh where there's a plague going through the city. I know you love Scotland, Dave. Mm. You might be you might be tempted to have a look at this one. It's, it's quite good too. Okay, I will have to have a look at that. Thank you. Mm. Now, something I wanted to mention, I have watched a bit of Doctor Who in the last month, but one story in particular I pulled off the shelf was The Twin Dilemma. Why? I'm not sure. <laughs> By <laughs> I just, mistake? I just, had this, I just had this urge, this, this feeling. But it's, it's interesting because although there are some Davison stories that 
I can remember images of from when they were first broadcast when I was very young. I, I can remember the capsule from Mordred Undead and I can remember the malice face both in the TARDIS mm. and in the church from The Awakening, for example, uh, and a couple of other images like that. But Twin Lamb is actually the first story I can remember on first broadcast whole scenes and episodes from. So I was sort of obviously getting that a little bit older by the time we got there. And so it is interesting to watch it again, thinking back to how I perceived it at the time. Now, look, the first thing to say is it's not a great story. And the Colin Baker, or the Sixth Doctor stuff, I should say, with Perry, it, it is as ghastly as everybody says. Let's get out of the way. But underneath that all, there is kind of an okay space adventure in there. Oh, yeah, they're trying to have a crack, that's for sure. It just it just doesn't work. No, look, it, it doesn't quite come off. But one thing that does amuse me is I can still remember as a child when you watch that scene where the twins turn around to the dead and they say, we're going to play equations. And the dad absolutely loses his mind. Mm. And I can remember as a kid going, oh my God, what's equations? This must be some absolutely terrifying, <laughs> you know, world-shattering thing. And you watch it now and you go, oh my God. It, 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 and he does play it that way. Yeah. And it's just such a bizarre scene because I can remember it being strange at, at the age of, you know, about four. And <laughs> watching back as an adult, it's, it's still that strange. However, I have to say, audience... Watch that scene where the twins want to play equations, and instead of them saying, Dad, we're going to play equations, imagine them saying, Dad, we're gay. Right. <laughs> it goes through this whole, the Dad, there's something we're going to tell you, and you're going to be very upset, he gets very stressed, and then he loses his stuff. And I think if you see that as a coming out scene, that's actually quite an amusing little episode. Especially on 80s television, I think quite realistic for that era. <laughs> Uh, yes, tonight in a very special episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> yes, exactly right. So oh. I watched The Twin Dilemma and I survived. Well, well done. Congratulations. And it reminds me that our mates over at Crinoid Podcast, Jim and Martin, recently did Twin Dilemma too. So if anyone doesn't want to experience it but does want to hear two people slog through it and talk about it, um, look up that episode. I think it's the second to last episode they did. Yeah, good idea. Because look, it is, it is an important episode because it does set up the series for some falls um but it's also kind of fun here and there check it out if you haven't for a while yeah all right rounding things up before we get on to our main topic of the episode i've been looking at and i've already hinted at this earlier the doctor's dvds there's a trouton and a pertwee one out there uh, there's a Tom Baker one coming, and I assume they'll do all the Doctors in time. And essentially, these are the Mythmakers videos brought to DVD, cleaned up a bit, new introductions. They're really quite fun. If you, if you weren't around in the mid-80s or even the mid-90s when these were getting made, basically, Nick Briggs getting around interviewing classic Doctor Who people in the, in the mid-80s and into the 90s, and they put these out on VHS tapes that were fairly expensive to buy at the time. So what you're getting now on these uh, DVDs is all the content from each era of each Doctor, and in, in cases where they updated the, the videos, the interviews with people, they may have done one in the mid-80s and then done another one in the 90s. They've put those together, so you get sort of the best of both worlds, you get new introductions, from uh, from Nick and uh, I think Keith Barnfather, who was the producer of the series, and they're just really, really enjoyable because particularly the mid-80s ones, a lot of these UK stars hadn't been doing the convention circuit, hadn't got their stories down, and they have very raw, very real responses to questions that you might not see them give anymore, actually. That's really cool. I hadn't realised that these were archive interviews. Yeah. Oh, I'm suddenly so much more interested in them. 
Yeah. Oh, look, you put on the, the Troughton one, and unfortunately they never got around to talking to Troughton, so his sort of segment comes from a, uh, a panel at a convention. But then you get into, say, Annika Wills, I think, is the first companion uh, off the off the cab rank and she is she's just come back to the uk from living in canada for a long time where i think she lived in a commune or something like that and they walk around the countryside and uh, most of the time she's saying oh look nick you've got to remind me of this you know because she she just doesn't remember a hell of a lot and it's it's a really interesting conversation about her life in general not just doctor who then you get to someone like Michael Craze. Of course, there's not a lot of footage of him around at all. That's an example of one that's been shot over two different time periods. The first is in the 80s where he's running a pub and Nick Briggs turns up at the pub and they sort of have a conversation in the pub. And then in the 90s, I think they recorded something in a, in a studio. So you sort of you know see him at two different times of his life. And unfortunately, he died reasonably young too. So that's one of the few uh, interviews I've ever seen him do. I'm trying to think of whether I've ever seen him in an interview and i don't think i have yeah yeah i mean he'd done conventions and so on he'd, he'd gotten into that circuit a bit but you know just the the wealth and the volume of material you get here on these discs is is fantastic i i highly recommend them they're, they're region free so you can buy them off say amazon uk and watch them you know here or there or in the us wherever you like they're region free it's it's, it's all good and yeah highly recommend them dave I'm so much more intrigued by them now you've described them. I thought they were just sort of um, just just sort of documentaries. No, no, not at all. Nick Briggs oh. gets around the countryside, often in quite bizarre circumstances. He interviews people, and as I mentioned at the start, there's a Debbie Watling uh, interview on the Troughton disc. She is just lovely. You know, there's mm. there's some filmed in the. Uh, in the mid-80s, where I guess she must be about to turn 40. She's around that age, so she still looks relatively young. And mm. then there's another bunch of interview footage from around the time they shot, uh, what's it called, Downtime, where yes. she's she's older, um, and it's all sort of spliced together really well. Oh, highly recommend these. I know I keep saying that, but they're really, really good. Oh, that's not... You've, you've, you've sold me on them. I'm very, very much intrigued now. Mm. Excellent. So, time for our main topic. Yes, indeed. We uh, prefaced this in our last episode. We said we want to talk about Doctor Who writers that maybe have only written one or two stories, maybe three at the most, that were really, really good and just never went on to write more for whatever reason. And we've got our own thoughts on, you know, who we like in that area. And we asked you for your thoughts and we got quite a few responses. We did. And it's really opened up a bit of a, a plethora of almost forgotten writers. Because when you think of Doctor Who writers, you think of... Holmes and Dix and Hulk and Moffat and Gattis and Davies and these people who did large amounts of them, um, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, those sort of people. But we kind of forget the people who just did one, two or three and some of them have got really good sets of episodes. Like they've only done two or three, but they're all really, really good. Yeah. And we wanted to celebrate that. Absolutely. So shall we kick off with some of our listeners' uh, thoughts? Yeah, so what, what we've done is we've compiled our listeners' thoughts. We've sort of gone through to build up a collection. So what we do is if, if multiple listeners have mentioned the same author, well, then the second time it comes around, we'll mention that they've got a second nomination, but we won't go into them in detail again. And the other thing is, Rob, you and I have made our picks as well. And if one of our picks comes up in a listener's email, we'll uh, mention it at the time as well. Just say, you've picked one of ours. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to kick off with... Ezra Penny, who has emailed us in. Thank you again, one of our regular 
correspondence. The writer I think has not been used much but really should be is Neil Gaiman. His episodes The Doctor's Wife and Nightmare in Silver are at the top ends of their respective series and work brilliantly as episodes. I had the privilege of seeing him at the Hay Festival in Wales this year and when someone asked him when he most felt like a god, he replied that it was being able to write in a script for Doctor Who inside TARDIS. He obviously liked writing for the show and would probably like to have another go at it. What do you think of this one, Rob? Well, I'd, I agree on some levels because The Doctor's Wife is just sublime. It is brilliant. It is amazing. But my God, he blotted his copybook with Nightmare in Silver. So Neil Gaiman, yes, he's written a great story, but he also wrote a really duff story as well. So they almost cancel each other out in my mind, Dave. Well, the irony is I actually like Nightmare in Silver far more than I like uh, The Doctor's Wife. Is that right? Yeah, I, I can't explain it. I, I just do. But the thing that's always got me about Neil Gaiman is I know how excited many people were when he wrote for the series. But to me, he was that guy that had an alien in Babylon 5 named after him. So serious kudos there. And I was very impressed when he wrote for Doctor Who. So you're definitely a big name. Oh, absolutely. And his uh, novel American Gods has recently been turned into a TV series, confusing the heck out of people, I've got to say, if any of my Facebook friends are any any judge, they're saying, what the hell is this? I don't understand this at all. So a very imaginative writer, for sure. All right, let's move on. And we'll be going down a similar uh, path here because Matthew Thomas Young has written to us. He says, hi, guys, just started listening to your show. And boy, do I love it. Your inquiry last episode of the Doctor Who show was for us to name our favorite non-regular writer of Doctor Who. Once I heard this, the one writer that stuck in my mind was Neil Gaiman. (laughs) As a young (laughs) child, I was a top fan of Neil. And some of my favorite books include his Coraline and also the Graveyard book. Once I started watching the show in 2013, I was thrilled to see that Neil had written a few episodes of the show for The Eleventh Doctor. At the time, The Eleventh was my favourite, but now I absolutely love Twelve. His two episodes, Nightmare and Silver and The Doctor's Wife, are great, although overall I prefer The Doctor's Wife. <laughs> He's with me, Dave. Um, <laughs> the interactions between The Doctor and Sexy are great, and the whole inclusion of the makeshift TARDIS is wonderful. What do you think of Neil's episodes? Thanks from Matthew in the US. So, we already touched on this a bit, Dave, but do you have anything to add on Neil's episodes. What I will say is whether you particularly dig or get or appreciate the storyline of his episodes, they are written in a very particularly wonderful style. And I think that makes them both watchable. Even if you don't like the the plot overall, he, he writes in a very intelligent and wonderful way. And I think that does show through. His experience does show through when he writes for Doctor Who. And there should be more of that. Absolutely. Uh, One thing I'll add too is now that Moffat's off, I think Gaiman came to the show because he was mates with Moffat. Now that Moffat's off, we've probably seen the last of Neil Gaiman. Look, look, maybe, but if you're Chris Chibnall and you want to, you know, there's a chance you can get Neil Gaiman to write a script. You you take that, surely. You, You at least try. Oh, well, of course, but uh, I, I just don't know what kind of level they're on. I know Neil Gaiman would go around to Moffat's house for dinner and stuff like that. You know, I don't know if Chibnall's on, on quite that level with him. Uh, fair enough. So a few more nominations coming up here, this time from Mike Solko, another regular contributor. And sometime host. Yeah, that's right. Hi, guys. First off, congrats on an excellent hot take episode on the 13th Doctor. Yay. The spliced, <laughs> the spliced <laughs> format made for a neat narrative. Sleep reactions to Doctor Who. Yes, they were quite sleep reactions to Doctor Who. Mine especially. Uh, I was sitting too close to the microphone, so I was sort of really in people's ears, you know, like this. <laughs> Regarding your question of one to three story writers we'd love to see more of, I'll obviously be tipping my hat as a Cartmel Master fan. 
Malcolm Cole is the first that comes to mind. Delta and the Bannerman is a delight with a dark element in it. A story like this, coupled with actual production values, could be the sort of breezy story that succeeds with the elusive non-fan audience. Stephen Wyatt crafted two excellent stories, Paradise Towers and The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, that were excellent examples of world-building. Imagine what he could do with a modern two-part format. And finally, Mike's going to nominate Rona Munro, who crafted two stories that make for ideal examples of their era. Survival was a strong story, even without being the finale to the classic series. Eaters of Light suffered only from a lack of time to develop the secondary characters. She's another writer I would love to see get a two-part story to build. So I'll make a couple of comments here. First of all, Rona Munro was one of my picks, so we've matched there, Mike. Well done. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you know, that's for some fairly obvious reasons. I've said before when we did our review of uh, Eaters of Light, Survival is my all-time favourite Doctor Who story from the 80s, and a large part of that comes down to the writing. Not all of it, but a large part. And I also loved Eaters of Light. That was a 9 out of 10 for me. So Rona Munro, I think two excellent stories in two very different eras. Um, the other one I want to give credit to is Stephen Wyatt. Mm. Because I think that Paradise Towers and Greatest Show in the Galaxy are flawed. There is stuff in their productions that doesn't quite come off, but it's not down to the script. Paradise Towers especially has got one of the cleverest world-building scripts with ideas and characters and thoughts that's been in Doctor Who. And so, although it's a story with flaws, Stephen Wyatt's writing was really incredible. And he was a big find on the part of um, Andrew Cartmore. Oh, absolutely. You know, to, to come in there in, in the first of the seasons that Cartmore was doing as well. You know, he, he got him straight off the back. He was only relying on Pip and Jane Baker as the old guard in that first season. And uh, Stephen White just slots in, I think Paradise Towers is second in the in that season, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I tell you, with a bigger budget, I mean, with a with today's budget, which aren't huge, but with the better effects and stuff of today, I think, wow, even if they remade Paradise Towers, it would look amazing today. Yeah, I, th- I think so as well. I think there's some really good stuff in there. Greatest Show in the Galaxy, again, it- it's imperfect, but there's some really chilling writing in there, some great ideas, great characters. And, oh, and yeah. some really clever sort of allegorical stuff going on in there as well. And people are still debating, are those two resis lesbians? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 30 um, years on. Malcolm Colo, any thoughts there? Uh, yeah, look, none of these were a snap for me, but all very good, all very good writers and an enjoyable part of the show's history. They just, uh, they just aren't my top picks. No, but I do think that one of the big successes that Andrew Carmel had as script editor was his ability to find and recruit new writers that really brought a whole new life to Doctor Who. And those are three examples of just what he did and credit to him for, you know, really making the era. Absolutely. Now, I think our um, radar will be pinging with this next letter. I read. Just, <laughs> just looking at the names here. Christopher, should, should, we, should, should we go through them one at a time, maybe? I think, yeah, we, pro- we should probably stop with each one, yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, this is Christopher Bryant who tweets at Chap with Wings is also the editor of the Target You and Who book um, that's being put together, and you'll hear from him this coming Saturday in You and Who talking. Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. Okay, his is more of a just a, a list of names rather than a, a letter itself. He says for his first one, Ben Aronovich for Remembrance of the Daleks and Battlefield. Any snaps there, Dave? Not a snap, but I give a lot of credit to it. Remembrance of the Daleks. Probably the standout classic of the McCoy era. Mm. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. And Battlefield, look, it's got flaws, and Ben Aronovich is the first to admit that, uh, particularly when he had to change it from being a three-parter to a four-parter. 
But again, there's some great stuff in there. And the work that he does, particularly in tandem with Andrew Cartmell, I think is particularly good. Those two really bounced off each other in a quite special way. So yeah, Ben Aronovich is a very worthy nominee. Absolutely. His second one here is Christopher Bailey for Kinder and Snake Dance. And I'm going to say Snap. Yes. Okay. <laughs> not, not a snap from me, but but I get why. But it's yours, so go on. I'm, you know, a, a, a blatant, unreconstructed Peter Davison fan. Um, as you probably heard when we <laughs> talked about Dave Gate at the start of the show. Yeah. Um, Kinder. Wow. Not a story I particularly got when I was a kid, but when I watched it later in life, even though it's, you know, a studio-bound production and they've tried to make a jungle in the studio and it's lit too brightly and all of this stuff, there's a still enough in there. It's still an amazing, amazing story. And then for Snake Dance to bring the Mara back, but it's not a retread of Kinder at all. It's a completely different culture. It's doing completely different things. I thought that was really, really interesting and imaginative. And both of these stories I just found really cool they're the kind of stories i think barry letts might have written in another life if that makes any sense yeah look it does and i'm a big fan of kinder as well and i really love the script there and the way that bailey constructs the society the way that he constructs the background of it which is quite a complicated sort of idea but he makes it all work but even a lot of the little things and the little characters you know panna and hannah for example mm. um the way he writes um hindle um you know brilliantly portrayed by simon rouse but it's a believable madman. Oh, it's yeah. It's a believable... You know, it's just so real. And scary. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of credit there. I'm not as big a fan of Snake Dance as other people. I think that it kind of just falls a little bit flat for me. The The core idea is great, and I give Bailey credit for that. I don't think the script kind of comes off in the same way as Kinder does. Um, maybe because it's a bit more generic sort of space planet with space people doing space things. But... It's still good, and I know a lot of people love it, so you know, what do I know? And, and a very young Martin Clunes getting around in it as well. A very young Martin Clunes, that's wonderful, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Chris Boucher for Face of Evil, Robots of Death, and Image of the Fendal. Well, this is not only a snap for me, but this is actually the one that inspired this whole topic for me, because I remember sitting there thinking, Chris Boucher, Face of Evil, Robots of Death, Image of the Fendal, they're three of the best stories the Doctor Who's had mm. and they're all by the same guy like that is probably I think like one of the best feet three for threes of any script editor in the series I I completely agree with you even though it's not a snap for me Face of Evil and Robots of Death in particular are stories I adore and why did he disappear I mean he came back for the BBC book Corpse Marker of course but he didn't really do much else because he went off to script edit Blake Seven. Oh, of course um, so famously Robert Holmes was asked by David Maloney if he would like to be the script editor, he said, no, no, I've just finished Doctor Who, it's always killed me. But I've just found this Chris Boucher guy, talk to him. Chris Boucher went on, he script edited all four series of Blake Seven, which in the first series, uh, meant not just script editing, but quite often in the second half, taking Terry Nation's quick one page of rough notes and turning it into a 50-minute script. <laughs> and um, he did some marvellous work. He wrote some brilliant Blake Seven stories as well. Incredibly quotable as well. He um, used to sit down the pub after shows with Paul Darrow and they'll just bounce off each other great lines that they could have or they'll want to use or stuff from old westerns that they could you know crowbar into a Blake Seven episode but yeah Chris Boucher is a great great author and I mean Robots of Death is consistently in Doctor Who polls a top 10 story mm. probably for the last 20 years yeah yeah with good reason yeah absolutely and just imagine if he'd come back to be the script editor for Doctor Who instead of Eric Saywood oh 
Dave, <laughs> I might have to go and have a lie down and not because I'm fluish. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Yeah. Who else has Christopher got for us? He's got Paul Cornell for Father's Day and Human Nature. Snap! Uh, Big snap here. Uh, I love Paul Cornell's writing and Father's Day. It's interesting, in that first Eccleston series, there were some go-to episodes that people would say, oh, you've got to watch Dalek, you've got to watch, you know, Empty Child and so on. But I always used to have this real fondness for Father's Day. And I used to say, oh, look, I'd get someone into the series by showing them Father's Day because it shows the, the... the nature of the series dealing with time how you can affect time it addresses one of the questions that doesn't get asked so much in doctor who which is why can't we go back and and save someone or rescue someone you know from from death or injury i really love that story and human nature of course originally being one of the na's just sublime as a tenant story as well so oh yeah i can't go past paul cornell writing and of course he also wrote many other na's like revelation love and war no future happy endings uh goth opera and a bbc eighth doctor adventure as well i think shadows of avalon yeah he was very prolific at that time and one of the authors that really defined 1990s doctor who i feel stupid that i didn't have him on my list because as you say father's day is a wonderful script that even though you can see the ending coming from about the halfway part mark like you you know how that story is going to end by about halfway through Hmm. it still absolutely hits you in the gut oh yeah this man has to go and walk in front of a car to save the world like yeah could could you do that you know yeah it's it's done so well but human nature this is my undisputed favorite episode of the new series is that right absolutely without question i think it's just a wonderful two episodes it's it's the it's the script in large part but the way that ten plays both the doctor and the doctor you know in in hiding um the way martha works the way the guest cast works you know right down to you know thomas sankster as the young boy it's brilliantly filmed but it's a wonderfully heart-wrenching script that does doctor who at its best and paul cornell gets doctor who oh yeah I think he really does. As you say, he knows how to play with time. He knows how to play with emotion. He knows how to play with sci-fi tropes and with history. And within those three episodes that he's written, yeah, there's some really template-esque Doctor Who stuff in there. So a really good pick there. I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed at myself I didn't have him on my list. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I'm glad I picked him up. Uh, next we have, oh, disqualification. Um, <laughs> the pick is for Robert Sloman. But he wrote The Daemons, The Green Death, Time Monster, and Planet of the Spiders. That's four stories, unfortunately. Yes, although he's credited as Guy Leopold for The Daemons, he did write four. But uh, look, we've given him a mention, but it doesn't technically count, I'm afraid. Okay. And finally, Robert Banks Stewart for Terror of the Zygons and Seeds of Doom. Well, this is another snap, this one from me. Uh, Robert Banks Banks Stewart, Terror of the Zygons, Seeds of Doom. Uh, Again, they're both in my top 20 for Doctor Who ever amazingly written stories, wonderful characters. You think of somebody like Scorby or Chase or Keeler or the Duke or, you know, somebody as simple as um, Angus the Landlord in Terror of the Zygons who's only got about three scenes but you feel like you know his entire character Mm. and you care when he gets killed by a Zygon. Yeah. Um, He creates the Zygons, which are this wonderful race that were deemed good enough to be brought back many times in spin-offs and fan fiction and then the 50th anniversary story. Yeah, and, you know, Terror of the Zygons and Seeds of Doom, not just classic fourth Doctor stories, but absolute classic all-time Doctor Who stories here. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is another example of somebody who only wrote two stories, but they are both undisputed classics. Mm, I agree. 
Okay, well, we'll move on then to another email from somebody who's becoming a regular emailer, and that's Richard Nolan. Hello, Richard. Hello, Richard. So again, he, he goes through a list of a few picks, and he has at the top of his list Chris Boucher. So that's another nomination for Chris, but we've just discussed him. He's got several new picks, though, um, and again, we've got some snaps for us. His first is John Lucarotti, who wrote Marco Polo, The Aztecs, and The Massacre, and this was a snap from me. Yeah, gosh. You know, it could have almost been a snap for me in terms of the Target novels, because I, I think of all these stories in terms of Target novels more so than the uh, TV versions. Of course, we can't watch the TV version of Marco Polo, for example. We can watch the Aztecs, though. But I remember these as great novels. Did you come to them through the novels? I would have been the first instance, but I've since obviously seen Marco... Sorry, no, I haven't seen Marco Polo. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen the Aztecs on DVD, and I've listened to both Marco Polo and The Mask many times in, in the audio versions. And they are Shakespearean in their dialogue. Mm, yeah, and really interesting topics as well. Can you imagine writing in those early days of Doctor Who and just having all the classic historical stories out there that you could write? You know, you can just cherry pick, oh, yeah, I'll have Marco Polo, I'll have The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, I'll have this, I'll have that. Wow, what a good time. They are, and these are stories that really helped inspire my love of history, which is still a passion to this day. But again, you look at the characters that he writes. Um, the two high priests in the Aztecs, Tatoxel and Ortlock, wonderfully written characters. Um, Kameka, you know, the, the Doctor you know, who falls in love with, wonderfully written character. Marco Polo himself, Tagana. How mm. good is Tagana in Marco mm. Polo? Yeah. Or the way, that, the way that he writes the elderly Kublai Khan. Or Ping Cho and her relationship with Susan. That's probably the best story that Susan gets, Marco Polo. It's a great shame that it's not um, not available for us to see unless somebody out there has a copy. If you would, so share it with us. <laughs> it would be amazing if that one came back. And is that one that got sent to many, many... I'm trying to remember. Was that one that was sent to many, many, many countries and it's just absurd that a copy doesn't exist somewhere? Yeah, it is the most circulated of any of the missing stories. And remember, every other episode of season one and the first half of season two is all available except the seven episodes of Marco Polo. Yeah, it's it's just bizarre. You know, the odds of that happening, are... <laughs> mm. I don't want to think about it. It is. But yeah, look, another example, I think there's three classic stories in that list. And John Lucarotti was asked back to write a story that became the arc in space. But I think that his style of writing just didn't work for the 70s and particularly for Hinchcliffe and Holmes, mm, which, yeah. is, which is a shame. But I, I can understand that. It, it is a very 60s style of writing that he has, which I love, but I think it is of its time. Yeah. Who else has Richard got? Uh, he's got another one that's a snap from me, actually. So that's Don Horton, who wrote Inferno and the Mind of Evil. You know, Don is the kind of writer when, when I'm watching, say, Inferno and his name comes up in the credits, I look at it and I think, what else did he write? And, and I'm sure he's written half a dozen things but as this list shows us only two only two yeah but gee what stories oh for sure i just i just have it in my head that he wrote more but he, he obviously didn't yeah i was surprised that he hadn't as well but what he has is great i think again they're both classics in many ways but he's very good at writing a slightly grittier sort of story both inferno and mind of evil have very high body counts quite nasty things that go on um, and I, I found them actually both quite scary stories when I was young. Yeah, and, and look, we think of, say, Eric Sayward having high body counts and stories and that being a bad thing, but here it's not a bad thing. So question without notice, what, what do you think is the difference between Horton and, say, Sayward? 
I think that you feel a bit more for the characters when they get written out by by Horton. I mean, some of the characters, particularly in the Parallel Earth, that you know you really feel for and you 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 feel their desperation as the Earth you know, is destroyed around them. Mm. Yeah, that works really really well. But I think the other thing is he's very good at creating terror, and particularly in the Mind of Evil. I remember as a kid the idea of this killer machine that could just appear out of nowhere and terrify you to death. Yeah. And then it's realised with that sound effect and that imagery and Dudley Simpson's music and you know, it all it all comes comes together. And but he he does throw some punches. I mean the way that Barnum gets killed at the end of Mind of Evil, that's brutal. Yeah. And when I think of Mind of Evil, I also think of the riot scenes and just the cacophony of noise in those scenes. You know, I, I, I really have to turn my TV down when that comes on. It's, it's mm. quite disconcerting. It's not part of the writing, but it's uh, it's part of that story that always makes you go, ooh. Yeah. If you want slightly dark and adult Doctor Who, then Don Horton, I think, is one you should check out. Definitely. Who else have we got? Richard's also nominated Richard Curtis for Vincent and the Doctor. Snap. <laughs> Tell us about this one, Rob. Well... Oh, I'll tell you about Richard Curtis in general. I think Richard Curtis is a genius. Um, he's written, oh gosh, not the nine o'clock news. He's written Blackadder. He did some uh, some stuff on Spitting Image. I know he did Mr. Bean, The Vicar of Dibley, um, movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, The Tall Guy, which I think is highly underrated. So many good stories that he's written over the years and for him to come into Doctor Who and not just come into Doctor Who but write one of the most affecting beautiful stories the only thing that lets it down is the monster isn't that good they probably didn't even need the monster in some ways wow just this comment on mental health um, a semi-historical with Vincent van Gogh in it and I look at scenes from this and I still well up it's just beautiful oh I can hardly believe it exists, this episode. It's just so good. Yeah, this is one of those examples of genuinely being impressed by the stunt writing in this this case. When we heard that Richard Curtis was writing an episode, I think that's the most impressed I've ever been by a, hey, they got this person. Mm. And and the fact that it was done back-to-back with Simon Nye from uh, Men Behaving Badly fame, I was going, wow, they're getting some great people in this season. And I think Vincent the Doctor, you're right, is a brilliant episode. It's probably my favourite of the Matt Smith era. And let's not forget that I suspect there's no doubt that the fact that Richard Curtis is writing means that we get Bill Nye in it. Yeah, of course. And, and you, you know, you talk about the, wow, they've got Richard Curtis in to write an episode. My reaction when suddenly they turned around and, oh my God, there's Bill Nye in Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> that blew me away. And there's no doubt that, it, you know, that didn't, that happened because... Richard Curtis was able to say, hey, mate, do you want to come and do this Doctor Who thing I'm writing? Yeah, if we couldn't have him as the Doctor, at least we could have him in a cameo here. Yeah, I don't think he'd work as the Doctor, but just just having him in Doctor Who just once. It's like John Cleese in City of Death. I'm just glad that he's got that one scene in there because it's so special. Yeah, that, that that's a good uh, example, actually. Yeah, I like that. But, yeah, oh, look, Richard Curtis, this is this is someone who I think could come back Neil Gaiman style for a second episode and, and hopefully not blot his copybook, although you like Neil's second episode, so I'll, I'll stop saying that. Yeah, look, I would have Richard Curtis back in a heartbeat. Mm. I mean, the guy, as you said, the guy's written so many great, wonderful things that I forgive him for Mr. Bean. <laughs> okay. A couple of others that Richard has nominated. Victor Pemberton, who only wrote one story. That's Fury from the Deep. Yeah, solid story. Um, you wonder why he didn't write more. I guess in those days of the 60s, they were just jobbing writers and they would just drop in and do a story and then move on. Yeah, particularly good target novelization. Though. One of the first really big ones, as I remember. 
That's right, yes. Uh, another one that I'm kicking myself for not having, Douglas Adams. Yeah, it'd be so obvious though, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's right, but the pirate planet, the city of death, mm. and of course, Sharda, if yeah. you count it. An era of the show where, you know, some people don't quite like the humour and how out of control Tom was at the time, which maybe marks it down a little, but an incredible writer in general. And like Richard Curtis, we could run through his, you know, bibliography and it's just incredible the stuff he wrote. It is, but I always just feel a little sense of pride that Douglas Adams back in the day wrote for my show. Oh, hell yes. Some of the stuff, I mean, City of Death, I think everybody knows is a wonderful classic. It's just the right blend of drama and comedy, but... Even the Pirate Planet, there's some really clever stuff in there and some really wonderful stuff, particularly the stuff with the induction corridor, which, uh, you know, <laughs> and the, the doctors sort of talk about the laws of physics and Newton's revenge. What is it? I'll never be cruel to an atom in a particle accelerator again and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I just love it. I absolutely love it. And even Sharda's, I think it's a great shame the second half of Sharda was never filmed because I think it would be far better regarded if you actually see those climactic interactions between the Doctor and Skagra. But, you know, by not getting it filmed properly, we got it as the first Dirk Gently book. That is true. That (laughs) is true. And finally, Richard has a couple of cheekier nominations. He says, does uh, Louis Griefer count for the Pyramids of Mars, which of course was a script heavily rewritten, if not totally (laughs) rewritten by Robert Holmes. And then he says, what about Robin Bland, who only wrote one story, The Brain of Morbius? (laughs) Cheeky bugger. But of course, we all know Robin Bland is really Terence Dix, who was so cross with the rewrites, he told Robert Holmes, just put it out under some bland pseudonym. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hence, Robin Bland. That's it. Richard, you are a cheeky bugger. That's that's yeah. official. But some good nominations there, some snaps from each of us. Absolutely. We've got Stephen B. from the New To Who podcast, who tweets at Steed Style, and he's uh, mentioned uh, some that we've already covered, so I'll just mention them here. Uh, Horton, Boucher, Bailey, Aronovich, Munro, and Adams. But he also mentions some, uh, some new ones too, Dave, so let me hit you with these, see if we get any snaps. Barbara Clegg for Enlightenment. Not a snap, but a very worthwhile nomination. Yeah, I would agree. En- Enlightenment was one of those stories, I think I'd heard about it as a kid. It's It's got sailing ships in space. I was thinking, oh my God. And it didn't let me down. I thought, this is a really interesting story. You know, the the characters of the Eternals were so interesting. The, the effects aren't too bad for the 80s, uh, for Doctor Who. I, I, yeah, I have a soft spot for Enlightenment, actually. Enlightenment to me is really the story where the whole Davis era finally, I think, comes together. And you've got that classic TARDIS crew of the Doctor, Teagan and Turlow suddenly all working together and they haven't got too many casts and Turlow isn't trying to kill the Doctor. Everything, (laughs) to me, just starts working from Enlightenment onwards. Yeah, that's right. Peter Ling for The Mind Robber. I was slapping myself when I saw this come through on Twitter. I thought I should have had this on my list because I love The Mind Robber. And Peter Ling, one story, but my God. God, what a story. And he's so inventive and so fun and so creepy. It's everything Doctor Who should be. Yeah, yeah. When I when I think of studio-based, weird, creepy 60s Doctor Who, this is the kind of story I think of. I also think of the Celestial Toymaker, which doesn't have as many fans. But yeah, Mind Rubber is amazing. I'm a big fan of the Celestial Toymaker, but Brian Hales, well, he wrote too many stories to qualify here and he did write a couple of duds, I'm afraid. Mm, unfortunately. Uh, moving on, Christopher H. Bidmead for the Gopolis, Castrovalva, and Frontios. Yeah, I toyed with having Christopher H. Bidmead in my list. Castrovalva was the one that kind of ruined his average for me and brought him down from three classics to 
two classics and an okay story. So he kind of dropped out of my list because of that. How, how do you feel about his three? I I have similar feelings, but for me, Frontios is the story I can never sort of get my head fully around and sort of enjoy. Oh, okay. I think that's his best. Interesting. I can, I, I can see how it's a good story. It just never connected me, I think, with me as a kid. And it's still one that I've watched as an adult. And unlike something like Kinder, where I've rewatched it and gone, oh, I get this now. This is incredible. I'm still like, uh, I still feel like I'm 10 years old and I don't like it. Uh. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, look, lots of respect for Chris Trench Bidmead, but, uh, and, and obviously Stephen is a big fan, and yeah, that's that's okay. Um, a lot of people are. Um, if this was a longer list, he would be on the list, but he just didn't quite make the cut for me, but I'm glad he made Stephen's cut. Indeed. Now, some more Davo here. Peter Grimwade for Time Flight, Mordred Undead, and Planet of Fire. And Dave, you actually asked Stephen to sort of, you know, talk about this a bit more and he added a much better director than writer but none of his stories are bad in themselves maybe if he directed his own they would have turned out well uh planet of fire is my favorite davison story mm-hmm. i'm a big fan of mordred undead time flight though sorry <laughs> sorry Stephen. i can't get behind you on time flight when he says none of the stories are bad in themselves maybe he's not referring to the tv story maybe he reads the novel and he thinks the novel's okay maybe yeah, and you know what? I credit Peter Grimwade with having a really good high concept in Time Flight. Like the idea of a Concord being kidnapped and taken back to the Jurassic era. There's some cool stuff in that. The idea of the Xerophons, there's a really good idea going on there. It doesn't quite come together. And look, I, I do agree that a large amount of that is probably down to the production and the direction. Maybe if Peter Grimwade had directed it, it would be. Because I think Peter Grimwade, I don't know why he's not mentioned in the same breath as some of the best directors we've had. Mm. everybody talks about Graham Harper, but to me, Peter Grimwade is on a level with Graham Harper. Yeah, I'd agree. So yeah, maybe maybe Stephen's onto something. Would Time Flight directed by Peter Grimwade have been better? I, I, I have no doubt it would have. Uh, would it have been brilliant? Gee, we might have to thrash that one out one day. I'm yeah. not sure. He still would have been, you know, coming up hard against the budget, I think. Yeah, and that's the problem. But Planet of Fire absolute favorite of mine as i say my favorite davo story so yeah top three davo for me yep, yep but, okay. but certainly right up there yeah okay Stephen has two more the first here is ian briggs for Dragonfire and curse of fenric uh, another one from the cartmel era that cartmel recruited and surely would have been back if the series had kept going two great stories i think Dragonfire is the best story of season 24 and i think a lot of fans thought that certainly at the time i think it's faded a little bit with time in some eyes mm. but curse of fenric i think a lot of fans have this one as their favorite of the season of the mccoy era and some would say the best of the 80s yeah it's a very popular story yeah absolutely you know i'm, I'm looking at this list and i'm thinking why didn't i pick ian briggs because that that is a pretty solid repertoire there <laughs> it is and and can i mention his two target novels particularly they are very, very good target novels. Overshadowed, perhaps, by some of the stuff like Ben Aronovich's novelisation of Remembrance of the Daleks. That is as good a target novelisation as you get. And Aronovich writes a great novel. But Briggs's Dragonfire and Curse of Fenric are also really, really good. And particularly Fenric, the way that he goes back and he shows you the past history of Judson and Millington and the, the old nurse... Um, the, the, the one who turned up as the housekeeper in as time goes by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... His name is Sammy, but you know she gets a backstory, and you you know you, you get so much more. But oh yeah, really good writers, very very good. I think that's probably the best pick on the list, Stephen. Well done with that one. Yeah, very good one there, Stephen. Uh, and finally, Mark Platt for Ghostlight, and I'm going to say snap. 
<laughs> Partly because I think Ghostlight is very imaginative and I think Mark Platt shows his chops there and I would have liked him to have written more for the show. But then he goes on to write some really great NAs. He did an MA as well and he's done a heap of big finish including, drumroll please, Spare Parts. Uh, you're a big spare parts fan, aren't you? I am. I am. I just so I just know he's an imaginative great writer, and I would have loved to have seen him do more, and to have only done one for the series. And it's a misunderstood story, you know. It, it rattles along at a fair pace. It's kind of hard to sort of you know catch the first time if you watch it and think, "What the hell just happened there?" Don't worry, you're not alone. <laughs> it's one of those stories. Yeah, look, it's it, it is. I've got a lot of time for it. I'm not as big on. Ghost Light as other people. I respect it. I think it has got some flaws in the way that it all came together. I would actually be fascinated to know how Mark Platt would rewrite that script now with another 20 years or more than that, 25 years of experience. What do you do differently to make it this map perhaps slightly more accessible whilst maintaining how clever it is? Mm, that's a really interesting thought. You know, one thing I always liked about it was just being studio set and it's a cliche to say but the bbc can just do period stuff so well and so that old house just looks amazing inside you know it's like you're watching a a 70s tom baker set in that era or something you know because the bbc just knocks it out of the park anytime you say make us an old looking house from like you know the 19th century or something they'll just go to town on it and it just looks so good and the use of music um, that song about the zoo, um, yes. the, the weirdness of the bodies in the um, in the drawers. Oh my god, I, I really like it. And, and look, Lungbarrow as well is a seminal Doctor Who novel that really ties together the entire McCoy era and really the whole nineteen nineties of Doctor Who literature. And yeah, very worthwhile. I get why it's one of your picks, Rob. Not 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 one of mine though. No, that's fair. Mark Platt's not afraid to go there when it comes to oh, I'll just write something into the Doctor Who mythology here. You know, whether it is something like Lung Barrow or it is a big finish like Spare Parts. He's he's written some amazing stuff that really changes things. So that's all we have from our listeners. We've covered some really good examples there. I've got one that was on my list that we haven't counted though. Oh yes, and that's Matthew Jones. Oh okay. Now, I've got him on for a couple of reasons. One, he wrote The Impossible Planet, which I think is a wonderful story. It's my favourite of that second season of uh, New Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, really good script. I think he gets the Tenant Rose relationship really well. Good characters. But I'm giving him the bonus points because he wrote one of my favourite new adventures, which is Bad Therapy. Right. Now, I, I, I could wax lyrical about the new adventures at length. There are many classic new adventures that sort of everybody has as the classics. They're the big ones of the series with big returning villains or big ideas or known writers or whatever. But Bad Therapy is one that just, for me personally, was just a wonderful story. It was so beautiful in the way it was told. I was so wrapped up and engaged with the characters. It brings back an old companion, I won't say who, mm-hmm. but it, it, it writes her really, really well. It, there's a very human, very touching, very personal way that Matt Jones writes his characters. And you see it in... The Impossible Planet. And you, you, I re, you read it in Bad Therapy, and I really like that. And so just as a, as a little different personal touch there, I, I thought that was uh, worthy of having. That's a really good call. Bad Therapy, of course, is one of the final NAs as well, people. So you won't have to pay $100 for it, but it is reasonably rare. The print runs were getting smaller and smaller, I think, towards the end. You will pay a pretty penny for it, a shiny shilling, if you uh, find a copy of Bad Therapy. 
yeah, look, I, I think it's worth it. I really like it. Um, a couple of others that haven't been mentioned that perhaps could have. David Fisher. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, who, of course, did The Leisure Hive, Stones of Blood, um, Androids of Tara. Yeah. Um, and Steve Gallagher. Okay. Yeah, fair, fair. You know, it's, it's interesting that none of our listeners, you know, called them out because, yeah, they're, they're both fair. Um, I also thought Johnny Byrne might get a go, but maybe his average wasn't that good when you think about it. He had a couple of good stories, but one, maybe two of them weren't too good either. Yeah, I'd say not, yeah. But the number of names that we've mentioned today just shows how many of these writers who did, in some cases, just one story, mm. you know, were really, really good. And we've been very lucky to have them. And it, I think it has been fun to mention some of these people who do get overshadowed by the big names and just look at how many great stories were written by one-offs. Yeah, I think if, if people listening to this go and pull out any of these stories we've mentioned tonight, they'll really enjoy themselves. Any of them. I think so, too. Okay, so that's wrapped up our main topic, but we do have a couple of listener emails. So the first we had coming via Facebook Messenger from Kenny Davidson. Much as I'm proud that our favourite show can still shock me and has caused shockwaves around the world, not everyone has been as pleased with me at the casting news. This is obviously referring to the casting of Jodie Whittaker. Trepidation and doubt at an impending new doctor at the helm ought to be the normal reaction, perhaps. Certainly it was reported as the response to the casting of Troughton the comedian off the Navy Lark, and the chap who the papers said was hired off a builder's site. I remember the unrest and fear when a young Tristan actor from All Creatures Great and Small was cast to replace the, by that time, institution that was Tom Baker. Perhaps nowadays we take it all too much in our stride. This latest casting feels like the shock value the early castings must have earned where the incoming actor has to earn their stripes in the opening episode and everyone tuning in to see if the new TARDIS ship sinks or swims. Not a reference there to the Davison. <laughs> Maybe. Long-term fans were not so much behind the sofa as on the edge of their seats. And there's usually eras of the show that someone in fandom doesn't like. I was not keen on the direction the Colin Baker years took, but then I went on increasingly to love the McCoy era. A regeneration of the Doctor is the show's ultimate cliffhanger plot device. It doesn't always work for everyone at the time. Some of us are excited by the impending change. For others, the jury is most definitely out. And that's fine. Perhaps that's as it should be. On a side note, with Stephen Moffat's era due to end heralding the arrival of the first Doctor played by an actress, it's notable that his era began with Matt Smith's first lines, including the exclamation, (laughs) I'm a girl! A certain sense of bookending of the era, perhaps. Cheers, Kenny. Good message, Kenny. I, I really enjoyed reading that. And you're quite right, I think... At the start of every new Doctor, I think people have even made a, a meme about this now, haven't they? There's people say, oh, the new yes. Doctor, oh, I hate them. Then halfway through their run, oh, they're quite good by the end of the run. Don't go, don't go. And it seems to be that way for most of them. It is. And, and you're right. You think about how we would have reacted in these days if Tom Baker had been cast. If we'd had Twitter when, as they say, the guy from the building site was cast as the Doctor, we would have gone spare. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... You know, Jody has all the sort of gender politics lumped on top of that kind of reaction as well, so that, that's been really um, making it a bit tougher for her. But I think, look, all my fingers and toes are crossed that she's going to do great and Chibnall's got some really great plan in place and it's, and it's going to be fine, you know, in the end. And if it's not, they'll change the Doctor. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. 
All right. Now, what we've got here are some uh, some pieces of feedback from iTunes. We don't we don't do a call out for iTunes feedback near enough. And you know, if you do use iTunes and you could see your way f- uh, clear to recommend us on there with a five star review, that would be lovely. I'll just read a few of these quickly. Um, the first is highly recommended by Peter David Hoopla from the UK. He says a comprehensive, informative, and entertaining podcast that covers all corners of the Doctor Who universe. Uh, Dave Clark, Dr. Dave, 1966 from the UK, writes, A brilliant show if you love Doctor Who. This is the one for you. Intelligent reviews from the show to comics to loads of fan info. Gives a great insight into the best sci-fi show in the world. And finally, a wonderful Doctor Who cast by Matt OM01 from the USA. One of the best podcasts for an avid Doctor Who and podcast fan. So thank you very much to all three of you. And again, if you do use iTunes, I know we don't ask this uh, all that often. It would be great if you could write us a review because, uh, interestingly, I don't know if you know this, Dave, when you're on iTunes, you're in your country's iTunes. So you're in, you're in Australian iTunes. If you go to Australian iTunes, you'll not see any of these three reviews because two of them are from the UK and one's from the US. But if you go to US iTunes, you'll see the review in the US iTunes. It's a, it's a very strange setup they have. Yeah, I knew that you sometimes couldn't buy movies or TV shows that were only available in some areas, but I didn't know reviews were quarantined like that. Yeah. And, and and as an avid advocate of free trade, I say bring down the barriers. Absolutely. It would make it much easier for me to find the reviews as well. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that is very kind. and yeah, Thank you for leaving those messages. All right. We'll be back in August. I think the 27th of August, to be precise. I think that's the final Sunday there. Um, unless something pops up between now and then, we break out a special Doctor Who show presents episode or something along those lines. Of course, we've got You and Who talking episodes uh, every week now popping up on the feed. I've recorded some more links with JR Southall last night. I think we've got up to about episode 25 in the can at present. Episode 16 through to 25 are already taken care of. So that's going to have a nice long run, that podcast. Do you listen to those, Dave? I do, yes. Not not instantly, but I do get around them when there's a quiet moment. Yeah, they're the kind of things you can sort of put aside because they're not news, they're not timely. You can sort of come to them at any time, and uh, we're, we're quite happy with how they're coming out. So that's all from me. Do you have anything to close on, Dave? Well, we should mention what we're going to talk about next month. Oh, of course we should. So we'd like to get your feedback, listeners, on our topic for next month, which is Doctor Who stories that you didn't like as a kid but as an adult, you've learned to love. I think I've given one away in this episode. I think you might have. I think you might have. But we're not talking about ones that you loved as a kid and you still love now. Or you loved you. The ones that as a kid, you just go, this is boring. This is awful. I'm not putting this on. I don't like this. But as an adult, you absolutely adore it. Mm-hmm. And there's a number on my list. I'm sure there's a few on yours. I suspect we'll get some really good feedback from our listeners as well. Another way to celebrate just those favourite Doctor Who stories that have perhaps grown on us over time. Yeah, drop us an email, hit us up on Facebook Messenger, tweet us, whatever you like, and we'll include you in the show. Absolutely, and in the meantime if you're a fan of the goodies, I haven't plugged the Goodies Pirate podcast for a while, but do check that out on iTunes if you're interested in a show that uh, went along with Doctor Who for many years here in Australia. Yes, it was must-see TV. So, with that, Dave, I think that's us done for the month of July. It's very much so, but a lot covered, and a an intense emotional month it's been. It has been. Announcements, Davo leaving Twitter. Oh, so much. I wonder what August will bring. Oh, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I'm stroking my nose as I do that. And on, and on that note, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. 
Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. Time Lord, and he went to a woman. So his great adversary went from a bloke to a woman, and then we just had his. Oh, this is this has just gone mad. We just had Missy, right, the master who turned into Missy. So he's a Time Lord, and he went to a woman. So his great adversary went from a bloke to a woman, and then we just had his sidekick burn the first lesbian, really. And now we got the top. Now Doctor Who's going to be a woman. Oh, have the world gone bloody mad? Why is it gone mad? It's gone mad. Can't leave anything alone, can they? But, but now, no, it'll probably no, be no, the ABC. No, the ABC no, will turn every bloody no, man into a no. woman. Just, but why? Why change it? Why change it? Please, why? Well, be- oh, yeah, but you're ABC. Of course you'll be all politically correct. Oh, yeah, we have to change it just for the sake of changing it. That is all it is because you have to because all the women's group pushing for it. Women's in charge of the ABC now, isn't she? Turn Mr. Squiggle no. into Mrs. Squiggle. No. What? No. Ms. 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 Squiggle. No, we Ms. don't. Ms. Blackboard. No. We Dr. don't Dr. make. Like no, we don't make Doctor Who. I know we don't. Bloody mongrels changing that. How ridiculous.